life is pointless. Unless a man has some religious belief which says otherwise, he must conclude life is without meaning and very brief. The preacher here says, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Why are we here? What's the point of it all? Through his servant, God would have all men brought to this point, forced to admit the utter futility of existence. However, this preacher, like Job, understands there's something more. There's God. There's his purposes. And these men concluded the only way to find real meaning was the fear of God. Historically, many people have spoken about this book of Ecclesiastes quite negatively. That they say it's, it's confused and it's self-contradictory. And there are others who don't like the doctrines that they find in it. Well, the sayings of the author or authors may seem to contradict each other sometimes. But perhaps that's because people have misunderstood the style and the aim of the book. And as for their preconceived ideas uh, being undermined, maybe it's just time for them to reevaluate their doctrines. They should bear in mind that there are other scriptures teaching the same things. Well, it's true, among Bible commentators, there are plenty of disagreements about how we should understand the book, but everyone agrees on the main point of the book. Without God, there is no meaning in life. And that will be our emphasis throughout. So let's talk a bit about how I intend to tackle this book. Now, normally I would take a, a, a paragraph or a whole chapter. I try to find out the most prominent theme and then base a message on that. This book is structured a little unusually. Almost the whole book is a presentation of a problem which doesn't have its solution uh, until the end of the book. So as we look at all these chapters, we'll consider them in the light of what we know from later on about the author's faith in God. Now it's, it's often, it's, it's difficult often to know how to break up uh, a chapter to speak from. I've committed to the first 11 verses and they amount to a sort of introduction. They form a kind of proposition in the form of a question. What advantage does man have, really? What advantage does man have? What about the authorship of the book? 
There seems to be more than one author. One of them is called the preacher. Now the word in Hebrew is a name. So you may not have heard of this name. The name is Kohelet. Kohelet. So when you see the word preacher, the word was a name. It was Kohelet. Now I've looked at dozens and dozens of translations of the Bible and only one of them keeps Kohelet as a name. All the others understand it as a function or a role and they translate it therefore as preacher or teacher. For those who are interested in the origins of words like me, the title of the book Ecclesiastes is actually named after Kohelet. Here we go again. It's named after Kohelet. Because that name Kohelet technically means the one who gathers people together. Now, the word in Greek for, one, for, for the gathering of the people of God together is called Ecclesia. And so you can see where they get the name Ecclesiastes from. Anyway, you can maybe see then why uh, most of the translators uh, understood this to refer to a preacher, even though I don't maybe disagree, don't maybe agree with them, but you can see where they got that from. It's someone who gathers together, so they thought, it must be a preacher. Evidence inside the book suggests Kohelet could be a name or a title used by Solomon for himself. Now it has been argued that some of the language in the book doesn't sound like that of a king, but I'm not, I'm not convinced by that. It seems to me Kohelet is actually Solomon. There seems to be another author, and he's, he's, uh, you'll come across this guy giving advice to his son. So there's, there's, a, there's another one. Still, most of the book are the words of Kohelet, or Solomon himself. Now the question posed for us in verse 3, what does a man gain, isn't answered in today's reading at all. So instead, these first 11 verses just set the scene for the rest of the whole book. So in the weeks to come, we're going to see questions, reflection, and hopefully plenty of stuff to, to bless us. So the first thing at the beginning that I'd like to talk about is Kohelet's negativity. So let's, let's think about that. He starts with, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Now vanity is one of those words which has changed meaning. Of course, when we say someone is uh, vain, suffering from vanity, we think about people who are always looking in the mirror and thinking how gorgeous they are. Like Laurie does. Everyone. Right? Yeah, I understand. But, <laughs> but in the Old Testament, this word, vanity, it refers to breath or breeze or vapour. But how it's used is as a metaphor. It's, it's used to describe things like a vapour. Things which, they don't have much substance and they don't last five minutes and then they're gone. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, that word vanity is used all the time to picture the meaningless 
of man's life. You'll see in verse 2, Kohelet uses the word vanity five times. Five times. Not only that, he uses the term vanity of vanities for extra emphasis. So we've seen that device used before with king of kings, holy of holies. And he wants us to understand that of all the things in life which we might describe as pointless, it's life itself which is the most meaningless and absurd. Verse 3 takes us straight to the crux of the matter. People spend their whole lives often working hard. They, they work hard, they toil, and for what exactly? You know people yourselves who they throw themselves into their career and they think making money to spend on themselves or their family is what creates meaning in their lives. I thought I'd mention this term under the sun in verse 3. All the stuff he does under the sun, because we'll keep seeing that, okay? It just means under heaven, on earth. So most of the book is from that perspective. He's talking as one who has that under the sun perspective. Well, material gain. Jesus warned about spending your life toiling for material gain. In Mark 8, 36, you'll know this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? No matter how successful a man thinks he's become, no matter how much wealth he accrues in his lifetime, in no time at all, he'll be overtaken by time or circumstance and his life will end. And for such a one who's devoted himself to his life or his family rather than God, nothing remains except to appear before God at the judgment, stripped of all that he spent his life working for. And even the good he thought he'd done in life, counting for nothing at all. As you get older, you start, you find yourself telling people just how quickly life passes by. When, you, when you're the age of our youngest daughters, who are 17, you think differently. You, you see, like, even middle age as something far off on the horizon. But if these girls of ours reach the age of 30, they'll ask themselves, what, what happened to my 20s? That wasn't an entire decade, surely. And when they reach 40, the previous decade will appear to have passed even more quickly. And the same for 50 and 60. And people who reach pensionable age, well, they marvel at all this. They, they talk about events, memories, from when they were children, as if it was just a few years ago. Psalm 90, verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, it's speaking generally, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. In the modern age, well, at least in developed countries, at least, 
Uh, it's not unusual for people to live beyond 90, but there's not one that doesn't suffer with their bodily or mental health. We spend our lives toiling in education, in jobs, in the care of our families, but in a moment we're gone. The next heading is nature's constancy compared. Nature's constancy compared. So the next section begins at the end of verse 4 and it goes on to verse 8. Kohelet, this author, he reminds people of things we observe in the natural world. There's the sun rising and setting each day, there's the wind which blows round and round. And there's the rivers constantly flowing into the sea. The common understanding of this passage is as follows. The common understanding amongst scholars goes like this. When we see these natural cycles which go on and on forever, we're reminded about the cycle of man's existence. Just as these natural cycles take place without bringing about any real change so it is with man generations come and go but no real improvement is made to the moral state of mankind and the same sins are committed now how the scriptures are understood largely dictates how they're translated and it's the interpretation I've just given you which led to the translation of verse 8. If you look at that again, all things are full of weariness, it says. All these things, it seems to say, all these things we see, they just go round and round for no good reason. I'm always reluctant to adopt a view which is in the minority. I don't mean I'm frightened of being in the minority, I'm not bothered about being the only person on the planet who believes such a thing. But, yeah, that doesn't bother me, but I need to use some wisdom here. If all the best minds have applied themselves to a text and come to the same conclusion, I need a very good reason to disagree with them. In all likelihood, they got it right. Nevertheless, there are times when we feel constrained to respectfully disagree with these better men. We're all thankful for Martin Luther, are we not? Who disagreed. So I have a different perspective on this passage. The, 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 I noticed something, the phrase which oddly the commentators seem to avoid is at the end of verse 4. It talks about how generations of man come and go then says, but the earth remains forever. It's contrasting the natural world with the life of man. Do you see that? It's a contrast. Here's how I think this comparison works. The man of life is temporary. There's this short existence followed by death. And a brand new generation springs up. And that generation will be quickly replaced. 
The motions in the natural world, however, continue. They go on and on, regardless of man's presence on the planet. The sun rises and sets, and then, as it were, runs round below us and arrives out of breath where it started to go through the same process again. The air in our atmosphere, it, it shifts from one place to another in the form of wind, but it's essentially the same air that's being moved around. The waters flow down the streams, down the rivers, into the sea, but they eventually end up flowing down the rivers into the sea again, and so they continue. This isn't meant to be a scientific study, but the point's clear enough. It's the same sun, it's the same air, and it's the same water that cycles around day after day, year after year. The generations of men, on the other hand, vanish and are replaced by brand new people. We're supposed to look at these natural processes, friends, and be in awe. We're meant to marvel at the brevity of our own lives when compared to the constancy of these great uh, events in the environment. And it's this interpretation of the passage which will lead us to re read uh, verse 8 in a completely different light. We would read verse 8 like this, we would say that these mighty works of God are things we can never see enough of. Things we can never hear enough of. I want you to focus on verse 8 again at the beginning. And quickly just have another read of it yourself. Verse 8. And listen to this psalm. And compare it. Psalm 106 and verse 2. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord? When you or I stand on the coast, watching the sea being constantly fed by rivers, when we watch the sun, when we watch the sun go down on the horizon, and we know for sure it's going to come back the next day, and when we perceive the cycles of wind, when we feel that breeze on our face, we're meant to be humbled by it. We consider that we'll soon be taken from this planet, yet the natural world will just carry on as if we never existed. It's humbling, friends. And as our verse suggests, all these things should leave us speechless. Speechless at God's great power and our insignificance. The next section is that nothing original is seen in the world. Nothing original is seen in the world. So we move on to verses 9 and 10. There's nothing new under the sun. We say that, don't we? When we hear something uh, common to every generation, there's nothing new under the sun, but it goes further than that, friends. You might say, you might say we have technology today that's never been seen throughout the whole of human history, and that would be true. 
But has that technology really changed us? Are we less sinful, for example, than the people 5,000 years ago? It's always been the case, friends, that each generation which emerges in this world thinks itself better than previous generations. Each thinks itself morally and intellectually superior. Man likes to think that his philosophy or poetry or artistic creations are brand new. It's safe to say anything we think or say or create is not original at all. I'm sorry. But you know, when I try to find new ways of expressing principles in the Bible, it keeps my feet on the ground, knowing that those phrases and images I dream up have already been preached many times throughout history. We're not as special as we think. And what's more, the generations who come after us will fall into the same trap. They'll think themselves the best thing that ever happened to the human race. They'll spend their entire lives thinking and speaking and creating, all the while convinced they're being original and cutting edge. Friends, Solomon didn't want us to stop thinking and deliberating and inventing stuff. But what he does say throws water on any pride which burns within us when we ever find ourselves marvelling at our own greatness. Here's the next point. Man is soon forgotten. Men and women are soon forgotten. The last verse in the section, it jolts us with a reminder of how quickly we're forgotten. People live their lives accumulating innumerable memories. There are stores of facts and ideas that they've learned. There are images and like little videos in their minds of events that they've experienced. Yet when they die, they take virtually all those memories to the grave with them. And will anyone remember them? Perhaps the wife will visit the grave of her dead husband. When she's gone, will the children visit his grave? Will the grandchildren? Take a walk, friends, through any cemetery in our city and see the hosts of abandoned gravestones. All that remains of the memories of previous generations. Karen and I uh, took a walk a few months ago around the cemetery. You might think that's strange, but I like cemeteries. They're peaceful. There's, you know, there's, there's trees and there's birds and flowers and uh, the peaceful places. And, and we looked at some of these headstones and, you know, they were toppled over and faded. They had moss on them. You could hardly read them. I remember saying something to Karen. Similar to what we're talking about today, I, I said to her how sad it was. We're looking at a name on a gravestone. 
of someone who's been completely forgotten in time. This had been a person they played as children. They'd perhaps been married and themselves had children. They'd likely experienced happiness and sadness in their lives the same ways that we do. They'd enjoyed the same sun and they'd looked on the same stars as us. And now, the only people who think about them in any way are strangers like us who just happen to pass by and look at their headstone. Throughout history, people have well understood that they must leave this world behind. And some of them have found this alarming. The ones who have the means to do so will try to They'll often try to immortalise themselves in some way. Sometimes it's through, you know, accomplishments. So, for example, with the ancient kings of Assyria, you know, they they would try to have something special built, or they try to have some great military victory, which they think will cause them to be remembered forever. I came across this poem by the poet Shelley, he authored this poem called Ozymandias. That's just a Greek name for one of the pharaohs. Anyway, he says, I met a traveller from an, an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage face it lies, and on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Well, it's just a poem, but it's based on a real archaeological find. What remains of that big statue we found is now in one of the museums, probably, probably the British Museum. <clears throat> and although we can link those remains with a specific individual. Can it be said really that we are remembering him? All that remains are a few facts about him. We don't remember the person he was. We might even say that the shattered remains of his statue in the museum will only cause him to be remembered as a fool who thought he was special. Well, this brings us to my final point, which is that purpose is found in God alone. Purpose is found in God alone through Christ. Kohelet's proposition is quite bleak. Man's life is both without meaning and brief. He works hard, but without real purpose. He brings nothing new to this world. The earth just carries on as normal after he's gone. And he's soon forgotten, disappearing into the oblivion of time. Now you might think that all this 
depressing stuff is far removed from the gospel, but you'd be dead wrong. If a man or a woman ever reaches a position where they finally see the futility of their existence, we should count that as a mercy of God. Their thinking is right as far as it goes. And, and I have in the past painted this exact picture to sinners on the street in open air preaching in the hope that God will continue to be merciful to that person so that they'll see him. They'll understand that the futility of life is as a result of them being without Christ. They'll come to see then that all the pursuits in this life are pretty much absurd. And they'll realise if they only ever see things from this under the sun perspective, without any consideration of the truth of God, they'll see all their work and all their friendships and all their creations as utterly pointless. I, I hinted earlier that we should stop making excuses for this book and instead treasure it. And I did say there are references outside the book which endorse it, so I'm going to give you one in Romans 8 and verse 20. Listen to this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So the Apostle Paul, possibly having Ecclesiastes in mind when he wrote the letter, confirmed that God put the world in this state of futility. Because fallen man could never fulfil the purpose originally intended for him. And so he would find himself in a state of hopelessness. But God didn't intend to leave men in that state forever. Because at the same time that he was pronouncing all those Genesis curses in front of Adam and Eve, curses on him and her and Satan and the creation, at the very same time, he was leaving them with a clue to their redemption. We have the great advantage of knowing who Jesus was, what he taught, what he did for his people. More than that, we have faith in him. We understand he humbled himself and came into this sin-cursed world. We remember that he too was born, grew up, learned, taught and then died. And so we recall that in doing this, he identified in a way with us in our hopelessness, but showed himself as the remedy for it. Because in him, as you know, we have forgiveness and life everlasting. The preacher had faith too. He may not have known the Messiah as we do, but he hoped, he hoped, and like Job, he understood the necessity 
of a true fear of God. A fear of God as the starting point for getting heavenly wisdom. All is vanity unless you have Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen.